the word ekphrasis comes from the Greek for the description of the work of art produced as a rhetorical exercise. It is a vivid, often dramatic, verbal description of a visual art piece. Hello everyone, thanks for tuning in. This is Darwin Mesadu, aka Darwin Darko. Welcome to The Ekphrastic, a podcast where we paint pictures with words. Today's subject, O Luis Guglielmi, I like saying that. His images of city life expressed the harsh realities of the Great Depression. He is unapologetically part of the struggling working class and never received sufficient attention in the study of American art history. But today, we'll give him his flowers. We'll get to know him a little bit better. But alas, he must wait just a little bit longer. After some news from the art world. Starting us off today, we have a piece from Art Forum at artforum.com. It was written December 3rd. The Tate is going to cut 120 gallery jobs in an attempt to survive the pandemic. So the London's Tate Museum has announced that it will shed 120 jobs or 12% of its staff as it moves to trim 4.8 million euros, about 6.5 million US dollars from its budget in an effort to stay afloat amid the continuing COVID-19 crisis. The institution, which in September cut half the workforce at its commercial arm, Tate Limited, has launched a voluntary reduction uh, program. Workers considering early retirement or looking to take a break are encouraged to attempt the, uh, to accept the offer. If the program doesn't receive enough volunteers, however, compulsory cuts, cuts will likely follow. Well, they uh, have a quote here. We now need to do what uh, so many others in our sector are doing, which is to reduce overall size of Tate Gallery workforce, said Tate Director Maria Balshaw and COO Vicky Cheatham in a statement. Uh, they also said that we hope that this voluntary process will help us make these significant savings, but we cannot rule out having to move to compulsory uh, redundancy in 2021 to meet the necessary level of reductions. Um, here's an idea. How about we start from the top down? They have the highest salaries. You want to reduce some salaries. Let's go ahead and get those folks out of the way. Yeah, but uh, I, I guess it doesn't work like that. It's trickle down, not trickle up. My bad. So the Tate, which supplies 70% of its funding through its own efforts, closed in March as the novel coronavirus spread in Britain, reopening in July in limited capacity. Shortly thereafter, it announced the possibility of, a com- of the commercial cuts, spawning protests and ultimately a strike with hundreds of artists signing on uh, to an open letter in support of striking staff, who voiced concern over the uh, disproportionate number of black and minority workers affected by the cuts. Although this turned out not to be the case and demanded the institution put 10% of 9.4 million support uh, it had received towards protecting those jobs. So the institution, um, you know, it has been closed for the total of six months of this year um, and expects it's supposed to host about a million visitors in 2020, but that number is far shorter than 
the amount of visitors it would have any during any normal year. Um, and they expect to lose about 75 million um, in self-generated income this this year, this fiscal year. So we'll we'll see what happens. We'll follow up with uh, we'll follow up um, later uh, in in 2021. See what uh, progress has been made uh, at the Tate. This is one of the museums that I definitely want to, to have a chance to visit um, next time I'm in Europe. Moving right along here, staying on the dreary side of the news, um, artist to MoMA take down Philip Johnson's name. So this is in, uh, I found this at uh, curbed.com. So before Philip Johnson designed a single building, he was already architecture's godfather, gadfly, scholar, patron, citric, curator, and cheerleader, as the critic Paul Goldberger once wrote. As the founding director of the Museum of Modern Arts Architecture and Design Department, he helped define modern architecture to the American public. His name is on the walls of MoMA's galleries, and as part of the title of its chief curator of architecture and design. But a group of artists and architects are demanding a reckoning with his full history. Because guess what? Philip Johnson was also a fascist. On Friday, the Johnson Study Group, a largely anonymous group of designers and architects documenting Johnson's influence on MoMA and the field of architecture, sent a letter to the museum demanding that his name be removed from all spaces and titles. 31 prominent names in architecture, design, and art also signed on. I'll move forward a little bit in the article here. Gets into the juicy stuff. So what qualifies, what disqualifies Johnson? According to the letter, uh, he's a white supremacist, uh, which is well documented in books, magazines, and his FBI file. Johnson described attending Nazi rallies in Germany as exhilarating and attempted to found a fascist political party in the United States. Uh, during World War II, he called the burning of Warsaw and the bombing of the Polish city of Maudlin by the Nazis a striking spectacle. He backed the anti-Semitic radio demagogue Father Coughlin and designed a stage for his rallies based on the one Hitler used. Only well after the war began that Johnson turned away from Nazism, and he spent the rest of his life trying to brush off the period as a, youth, a youthful indiscretion. His biographer, Mark Lamster, man, it's always a youthful indiscretion with some of these people, isn't it? Some people are young and get judged as adults, and other people are the same age, and it's, oh, they're just kids. They, they were just children. It was a youthful indiscretion. Talk about whitewashing history. I'll continue. His biographer, Mark Lamster, theorizes that his social connections and wealth saved Johnson from being jailed. Uh, obviously, the rich play by different rules. Uh, so after the war, he became one of the country's most sought-after architects, celebrated to this day. His role in the building of the MoMA as an institution is inarguable. Johnson founded its architecture department, curated its groundbreaking early design exhibit, and even designed a wing of the building that opened in 1964. Uh, so it goes on to talk about a lot of his, uh, you know, uh, you know, the um, his accomplishments and um, why he uh, managed to successfully, um, you know, power wash his reputation. Uh, but he did; he missed the spot because <laughs> because these uh, these signees uh, who include Kate Orf uh, 
Orff, a landscape architect, these, these, these folks are not, um, they're, they're, they're not going to have it, not on their watch. I shall, ha- I shall not have it. Amali Adreas, Dean of Columbia University, Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation, and Justin Garrett Moore, the Executive Director of New York City's Public Design Commission and founding member of Black Space, a black urbanist collective. All these folks are uh, some of the signees uh, to, to this letter. So the, the group, the Johnson Study Group, was formed over the summer. This is uh, 2020. Um, as, um, as they worked on, uh, you know, a commission for reconstruction. Uh, she, 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 this is, um, this is V. Mitch McQueen. Uh, she's an architect and professor at Princeton. She watched as architectural institutions released anti-racism statements in response to the uprising sparked by George Floyd's killing. And she decided to explore MoMA's own history in this regard. What she found was that Johnson, was, who was affiliated with MoMA almost continuously from 1932 to his death in 2005, had an outsized influence on whose work the museum collected and exhibited and who it didn't, namely that of black architects. So no word here on the uh, success or failure of the letter. It looks like this is something else um, I may have to follow up on. But the MoMA is not, I mean, if you look in the history of many, probably all of our, you know, these institutions that are seminal in our country, you know, they're, they're, they're um, markers on the landscape, uh, wherever, and depending on the city that you go, you dig, if you scratch beneath the surface just a little bit, there's a lot of racism there. There's a lot of problematic people in, in, in um, in those in those uh, in those chapters, um, I I'm I don't believe in erasing history, but I do fully believe in context. I believe in context and adding more information than um, though some of these cure, especially curated historians want you to believe and, and want to po- uh, portray. Just tell the truth. Tell the f- the full truth. Of the history of these of these people, and let if, if this is something that now we want to support today, then you know it'll have its space. We will make it let let capitalism do its thing, right? And if it's something that people get turned off by because of the history, they know the full truth. Then guess what? It'll be relegated to the dustbin of history. It'll be filed away. We'll know the full story, and we won't be fo- forced to participate and hold some of these people up to on this pedestal when that they didn't really fully deserve. But okay, let's get a little bit, let's get out of the darkness and into some, well, I was going to say, let's get out of the dumpster, but this next story is actually brings us right back to the gutter. It's a funny story though. Uh, so this painting by famed surrealist Yves uh, Tenge, Tengai uh, was found in a trash <laughs> container at German at the German airport. Uh, so, so German police have retrieved the surrealist painting. You know, this thing's worth over uh, $300,000, and it was found in a trash can. So what happened is um, this this guy, who starts the story here? This is so funny. It's, 
Random guy. The uh, abstract landscape first went missing in November 27th when an unnamed businessman accidentally left it at a check-in counter at the airport in uh, western Germany. The artwork, painted in earthy tones, was packaged in a flat cardboard box measuring about 16 by 24 inches. It was only when the man was boarding his flight to Tel Aviv that he realized he had left his precious hand luggage behind. Upon arrival in Israel, he contacted the airport authorities to find the lost property, according to German police. When this was unsuccessful, he enlisted the help of his nephew in Belgium. Eventually, the nephew, who was uh, who also had been uh, was not named, traveled to Dusseldorf, where he lodged a report with local police. The force uh, said in a statement. When the case landed on the police commissioner's desk, he contacted the cleaning company that maintains the airport terminal, and eventually joined the facility manager in sifting through a paper recycling bin and discovered the valuable painting at the bottom. Oh, why Why couldn't I just stumble across something like this? I couldn't just be walking by, oh, this is, you know, what is it, uh, brown paper bags tied up in string, you know, nice and pretty and gift wrapped for me, $300,000 painting just sitting there, right? And you're this, uh, you know, you're just this, um, you know, the dredges of society are cleaning behind the bourgeoisie and everything. And they, you, you just come across um, this $300,000 painting and you don't even, you don't know no better. See, this is why we need art education people. Because you just threw this thing away. Uh, I guess it was covered. So how do you know? I don't know. You never know, right? Um, uh, you could have opened it up and, and it would have changed his, his, his life. And, you know, he's, there's going to be no reward for, for doing your job. I guess you did your job too well, cleaning up the airport too well. <laughs> so uh, the artwork ended up in the dumpster, and um, it, there it laid. And the good thing it didn't hit the uh, trash compactor. So they found it, and they saved it. Uh, according to the Guggenheim's website, Tungay was born, in, who was the artist, was born in Paris in 1900. Despite of la- a lack of formal training, he staged his first solo show in 1927 at the Gallery Surrealist uh, in Paris. A year later, he joined uh, Miro, Picasso, and others in a Surrealist exhibition at the Gallery Au Soc de Pointet in French capital. Yeah, I blew that. Yeah, I'm of French descent, and I still couldn't get that one right, but you'll forgive me. Tungai later settled in Connecticut where he died in 1955. Okay, hold on, wait a second. Today's episode is about someone else. We're trying to highlight Luis Guglielmi today, so let's not get too far into the rabbit hole of uh, Tungai here. But again, looks like I might have to follow up on another artist. And finally, $200,000 have been allocated to fine arts in rural schools by Georgia Department of Education. This is a local news uh, piece here in Georgia. So 21 schools, this is great news. 21 schools in Georgia are getting uh, additional fine arts funding in the third round of START grants. The grants can be used to create or expand arts initiatives that significantly improve students' access to the arts. Uh, We have a quote here from the superintendent, Richard Woods. It It is an absolute top priority of my administration to expand access to the fine arts for Georgia students. The arts are not an extra. They are a crucial part of a well-rounded education. Amen, brother. Uh, And he goes on to say, and students in all parts of our state deserve access to a high-quality arts education. This funding will help more rural 
districts expand that access to children. Then it goes on to list a bunch of the where the grants will be allocated, uh, a bunch of those schools there. So that's awesome. Uh, there's some um, there's several high schools here, middle schools, uh, elementary school. I got introduced to art, you know, uh, art classes in elementary school, you know, doing those little funky things that you, you know, simple, simplistic kind of things, you know, cutesy stuff that you bring home to your parents and they put it on the refrigerator. Um, and then I continued. I hadn't, I hadn't done uh, any art courses uh, after that until I got to high school, in, in, in which it was an elective. And, you know, I've, that's when I, I kind of harn, uh, harnessed my, my inquisitiveness into art. I didn't pursue it. I thought about it. I'm not that good. <laughs> I, I've made friends in the art world, so compared to some of the stuff that they put out, I'm glad I, I'm glad I cut my, um, cut, cut my own ambitions short there because uh, these, these folks are good and it's, it's high-quality stuff that, that folks are putting out these days and I enjoy it and I can enjoy it vicariously and that's okay. So uh, great to hear that art is an art education expanding in Georgia. Let's do that for all the other states. I, I would appreciate that. And uh, we can end on some good news there. And we can now get back, finally, to our ecrastic artist of the day, Luis Guglielmi. Born in Cairo, Egypt in 1906, the child Osvaldo Luis Guglielmi lived in Milan and Geneva, while his Italian father, a professional violinist, toured the world. In 1914, his parents brought him to the U.S., where he lived in Harlem, New York. He was interested in sculpture as a young, at a young age and worked at a casting factory. He attended the National Academy of Design in the evening, and began, uh, which, where, where he began in 1920, while he also attended high school. The Great Depression brought financial hardship, but the difficult times inspired his artwork. Guglielmi has never received sufficient attention in the study of American art history, even though he was a well-known figure in the New York art world from the mid-1930s through the time of his death. Part of the reason um, for this unduly obscure historical position is the celebration of abstract expressionism, which has caused us to view the 1930s as a provincial background to the achievements of Pollock, de Kooning, and Hoffman in the 1940s. Guglielmi was a painter. He moved stylistically from precisionism, surrealism, geometric abstraction, regionalism, and social realism, ultimately to abstraction. But his subject matter, when it existed, dealt with society's underdogs. Being the master craftsman that he was, he knew how to arrange a painting. His subway exit, or uh, the cityscape with figures, and from Manhattan, are full of compositional dynamic push and pull, enhancing visual activity. Guglielmi's work is an anthology, a handbook of evolution of American art in the modern era. To understand it is to understand American taste. His art is a documentation of our aesthetic preferences. One would think that after serving three years in the army in World War II, Guglielmi might have emerged from widespread wartime suffering with an enhanced concern for the plight of humanity, uh, which he had exhibited prior in his uh, earlier works. But what he did, actually, uh, stylistically speaking, was avoid humanity altogether, avoiding humanity and the world, really, uh, through his decision to paint abstractly. Perhaps overwhelmed by his experiences, immersing himself solely 
in the safer, less troubling world of aesthetic manipulation. At the end, Guglielmi was painting completely abstract works. In today's extracted poem, we will revisit Guglielmi's human side. Okay, so here's how we do this again, folks. Remember, this is a description of a visual art piece. As I'm speaking, I want you to visit the acrastic page on my website, darwindarko.com. Check the show notes. Uh, there should be a link there. At the site, you will find a catalog of all the artwork we discuss. To accompany today's reading, I want you to pull up the image of Subway Exit by O. Luis Guglielmi. I'll give you a second to search for it in your browser. Sunlight beats on my skin, but I can barely see the sky. The clouds have had their fill, but the underground terrifies me. The subway headed down, the tunnel of dark ugh, makes me nervous. But Ma, Ma's late, and she don't care that I'm scared. We rush through the crowds of people. She grabs me by my arm, pulling me to New York City. My feet hit the concrete steps, and my hand brushes across the iron railing. I can see it. I can smell the fresh air. Oh, God. Have mercy on us this day. Maybe Ma will find a job. We can eat tonight. And tomorrow? And I won't have to take the underground again. Ever again. Yeah. That would be nice. That was from an unknown author, so unfortunately can't give you the credit, but thanks for the contribution. Although Guglielmi enjoyed reasonable popularity during his lifetime, I mean, his works are included in leading museums and private collections after all. His reputation has suffered greatly since his death in 1956 at the age of 50. Why? Well, even a summary examination of his shows that offer a range of paintings from his career, I mean, from the 1920s, spanning from 1920s to the 1950s, it's 30 years, it provides an immediate answer. Guglielmi was a relentless, shall we say, borrower, an irrepressible eclectic who seemed to prey voraciously on the styles of others. As we look at canvas after canvas, we see aspects of Stuart Davis, Brock, Picasso, and others. Thus, it is difficult at first to see that Guglielmi was indeed an artist in his own right, that he was anything more than a facile amalgam of other artists whom he admired. But hold on, that's a little rough. Perhaps our century has placed too much emphasis on originality, on the so-called mavericks and iconoclasts of the avant-garde who are tirelessly and ruthlessly searching for something new. Okay, you could say that. But they often end up in, in novelty 
only a few actually turn out to be actually innovative. Guglielmo's work is good. It can be found in the collections of the, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, of course, the MoMA, uh, and the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York, uh, as well as the National Museum of, of Art uh, in the Smithsonian, Washington, D.C., and Newark Museum in New Jersey. Well, hopefully we did our part in keeping his memory alive. That's about it for today, folks. It's been fun. It's been fun sharing this art with you. Thanks for joining me on this journey. Again, for this and other artwork we discuss, check out the acrostic page on my website, darwindarko.com. It's where you can find this stuff catalog for your viewing pleasure. I'm Darwin Mesidu, aka Darwin Darko, amateur art enthusiast. Thanks for listening to the acrostic. <laughs>